I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. Welcome to the first episode of this new season of the show. Industrial processes remain one of the hardest sectors of the economy to decarbonize. Fossil fuels have been the go-to way of fueling the flames that power these large facilities. Think paper, plastics, food and beverages, and chemicals. These established industries rely on dated ways of producing raw materials. Taking a bite out of the 24% of greenhouse gas emissions that industry emits each year means changing the way companies produce their raw materials. The problem? Sometimes the hardest sectors to decarbonize are the ones that may not believe in climate change at all, and thus don't feel the need to change their practices. And that's what today's guest, Shreya DeVay, CEO and co-founder of Via Separations, is changing. So our focus at VIA is reducing the cost and resource requirements to produce raw materials. So these are things that are upstream of upstream products that most of us think about. Um, And we do that by decarbonizing their manufacturing, by reducing their energy burden in the process, that separation step. About 75% of the cost of producing a chemical is the separation process. So large numbers, and we really focus on that. Shreya and the team at Via Separations are making it attractive for their customers to decarbonize by providing a cheaper alternative to an often overlooked source of emissions, chemical separations and purification. The traditional way of separating desirable materials from unwanted waste product is as resource-intensive as they come. Shreya likens the whole process to separating pasta from water in a pot. The water, which is the waste product, is boiled off using heat from fossil fuels to get to just the cooked pasta or the desirable material at the bottom of the pot. Today, we boil off all the water to get to the pasta at the bottom of a pot instead of pouring it through a strainer, which at the industrial scale is 10 times less energy. It's lower cost. It's fully electrifiable. It's more modular and demand responsive. And so customers like it. Via Separations is changing the way separations are done by developing and deploying filtration systems that act like a pasta strainer, filtering out the waste product using less energy and producing less emissions. So at a pilot site today, you're at a pulp mill. These are very large, very industrial environments. You're wearing a hard hat. You're wearing a reflective vest and steel toe boots. And the pilot is roughly the size of a U-Haul box truck, you know, like a moving truck. And it's got pumps and pipes. It's, you know, stainless steel. And it's the kind of whole product that that conducts the separation process. The strainer, instead of the pasta pot, uh, is in that part of the product. And once they deploy their first commercial system later this year, that 10,000-square-foot unit would run on just under one megawatt of electricity, which would replace eight to nine megawatts of fossil fuel-based heat. The energy savings can't be understated. Chemical separations and purification make up a whopping 12% of the country's yearly energy consumption. That's on par with all of the energy used in gasoline-powered cars and trucks in the U.S. every year. 
we, when we think about industrial uh, decarbonization, we're really focused on specific industries, you know, steel or cement or chemicals as another one. Um, but separations is very much a cross-cutting technology, a cross-cutting issue. When you stack up all the emissions caused by separations across all of the industrial sector, they account for more than cement, steel, agriculture, and mining combined. I spoke with Shreya about the work needed to take their tech from bench scale to full-on pilot, the importance of speaking to customers about their needs, and the industries Via Separations is going after first. We started with Shreya's childhood in Bedford, Massachusetts, as the daughter of Indian immigrants, where her bookish pursuits led her to a passion for the environment. So you grew up in Bedford, Massachusetts with your mom, dad, and sister. Your dad worked in software before starting a few companies later in his career, and your mom was an accountant after studying chemistry in college. Tell me about your childhood and your parents and how they shaped you. Oh, that's a big question. I um, I guess I'll start by saying that I feel like I won the lottery in the parents' department um, at my parents' house right now because they're watching my 10-month-old son today. And so oh. it's, a, it's a family affair. Um, my family's of in Indian origin, and so maybe it's not super surprising that they really put an emphasis on education. Education was really important, and our number one, my sister and my number one kind of responsibility growing up. And both my parents were very involved in our education. And then I think also encouraged us to take risks and not be afraid of failing. I think that was a big, big lesson. I don't know exactly know where that came from, but I, I think that was a big lesson we both learned. As you said, my mom worked from home. She's an accountant. And so I got a front row seat to her work ethic. My dad was an entrepreneur, another a hardworking individual. But one thing that sticks out to me in hindsight is, and as a parent now myself, is how we always ate dinner together every single night, no matter how, or most nights, let's be, let's be honest, but um, no matter how busy everybody was or, or where, you know, the rest of life takes you. And that's something that we emulate, my husband and I now emulate in our home today. Oh, it's very sweet. Um, as a kid, you were self-described as bookish and introverted. Yeah, um, I was friends with all the school librarians, so if that gives you a sense of oh. <laughs> who I was, That's I was very, adorable. very cool. Um, but you know, I had a, I had a good. We didn't have a ton of extended family locally, but we had really close family friends that that I grew up with, and you know, a close knit group of friends in the schools that I went to. I do think it's funny that if you had told me back then that my job would be talking to people all day today, I A, wouldn't have believed you, and B, wouldn't have thought it was very much fun, <laughs> but it turns out it is. <laughs> good, good. You didn't see podcasts in your future? Did not. Still, still don't, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the more reason I'm happier here. Um, so in high school, I know you took this environmental science class and it kicked off a passion for the subject. When you were in high school, did you have a sense of what your career would be? No, I really didn't have a sense of what career meant when I was in high school. I had a teacher, Mr. Griffin, who taught EP environmental science, and he really helped, uh, really introduced me to the concept of sustainability, concept of 
climate change, I remember waiting for the science section in the Boston Globe every week on Tuesdays to read an article or two, if I was lucky, about climate change, about uh, sustainability. And, And obviously, times have changed since then. But really feel fortunate to be able to kind of live that value and do that as my career now. But I I didn't really know what it meant to be an engineer. I just knew I wanted to make a difference. And I had been told uh, by my dad and others that engineers build things and they make a difference and they have impact on people's lives. And so I was good at math. I was good at science. I wanted to help people. And that's how I decided to study engineering. Hmm. And so I know you decided to study engineering at MIT. This was in 2005. Um, Why did you choose MIT? And then what was your experience like in the mechanical engineering program? Sure. I chose MIT uh, really unexpectedly during the visit weekend. I fell in love with the place uh, because of the people, because everybody I met was excited about being there and excited about whatever it was they were working on. And that was the first time I had really felt kind of the passion for work-related things that I I didn't know existed out in the world. I think that continued to be true the entire time I was at MIT. Um, my experience there was phenomenal. There's a really formative class a product development class. It's called 2009. It's about how to think about product development kind of back to front and how to tackle risks in order of importance as opposed to order of ease uh, and a lot of other things uh, that came out of that, including a lot of interpersonal dynamics experience and education taught by Professor Wallace. And that class, I think, really changed the way I looked at engineering, changed the way VIA looks at product development, um, and and lessons that I take directly from that every single day. You mentioned being at MIT for a long time. So after graduating in 09, I know you went on to complete a dual master's program in both energy and policy and mechanical engineering at MIT. Um, what did you learn from your time there and in both of those programs? Yeah, Um Well, first, I learned to never say I will never do that because I initially said I would never go to grad school, and then I did, and then I said I will never get a PhD, and then I did, and then I said I would never. Why did you think you wouldn't go to grad school or get a PhD at the time? So I didn't know why grad school was valuable, but the reason I did go to grad school was because I believe that I could learn a lot about large levers that have impact on climate change. And so to me, that was policy. You know, that was engineering before, and then it turned into policy. And uh, because I wanted to have that real-world impact, I didn't think that academia was the route. Not that academia doesn't have real-world impact, but I really thought that I was going to take those policy learnings and apply them to maybe more applied more applied scenarios. But I just absolutely loved the academic environment, the open discourse, the ability to go to a seminar on something that's really tangentially related to what you're working on and think about how those creative interfaces could be different or could be better or could be leveraged. And so, uh, yet said I would never do a PhD and (laughs) ended up doing a PhD. 
and then honestly said that I wasn't wouldn't enjoy sales. I probably wouldn't uh, want ever be in a role where I do sales. And sure enough, <laughs> I'm in a role that I do sales, and I love it. <laughs> Is there anything you you tell yourself now that you'll never do that we can just get on record and then see if you end up doing it? No, because I've learned my lesson now. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Um, and so I know you applied to, as you said, and were accepted into the PhD program in mechanical engineering, also at MIT. But then your path took a different turn. What happened? Yeah. So I ended up working with Professor Jeff Grossman in the material science department, and I was working on a project. So Jeff's lab at the time was predominantly theoretical computational material scientists, and that is not at all what I do. Um, What they do is basically predict how materials will behave under certain conditions and manipulate those materials to do things that are useful to us. Um, But I joined as an experimental grad student. Jeff had one other experimental graduate student who is now my co-founder and CTO, Brent Keller. And we bonded over how difficult it was to make those atoms do those things in the real world and shared methods on how to do that or how to uh, characterize it to basically how to tell if we had done that successfully. Um, and I ended up doing a PhD where um, the first part was pretty fundamental science, um, characterization with transmission electron microscopy. I did a little bit of chemical synthesis, learned that uh, chemistry is a very um, beautiful art and science that was uh, very difficult for me. Um, and I did an economic analysis on the technology that we were developing to figure out if it had impact in the real world, which it did not. When I looked at the, <laughs> the results of that study, were were that it did not, Um, which is ironic because that is the work that we are commercializing at VIA today, um, just in a very different uh, application, different market set. And of course, it's now that it's a product has taken on a life of its own. Hmm. What was the initial application for that technology that you were working on at the time that, that had no market? Yeah, we were looking at new materials for water filtration. And so the idea there was if we could make a cheaper, better, faster filter to take salt out of seawater and turn it into fresh water, we could reduce the water stress, you know, globally. And that um, so that spoke to me very, very much from a impact level. Um, and we knew theoretically what we needed to do to achieve that. Uh, and so making it work was sort of my task. Uh, What we learned was that even if you had a much cheaper, better, faster filter, you weren't impacting the overall cost of desalinated water a whole bunch. Um, And that's because of things like economies of scale. That's because of things like cost of capital and things that I was not thinking about um, as a material scientist or a mechanical engineer in the lab. Um, But what it does, what we did do was develop a technology that had applications beyond water. And so what I learned shortly after defending my thesis was that we boil off about 10 times the volume of chemicals as water that we filter every year. And we boil it off in the pasta pot instead of using the pasta strainer because the strainer for those chemical environments don't exist. And so our first 
kind of effort as a company or before we were a company, our first effort as we graduated was to evaluate whether there was a product market fit here because we didn't want to push a technology. We wanted to solve this problem of turning pasta pots into pasta strainers. And you had that lesson from this experience with water desal, which I feel like a lot of academics don't get because you're not forced to think about, okay, well, what are the market fundamentals that I need to consider in order to realize if this can be commercialized? But you had had that lesson. And so you applied that to the idea of building this pasta strainer. Yeah, I was really fortunate that Jeff let me do that because that's not a traditional PhD research paper um, or topic. But it mattered to both of us that we were making doing something that was relatively applied. And so he was on board and enabled and um, helped me find the people I needed to talk to to learn how to do that because I didn't know how to do that either. Um, And so I feel very fortunate that I find that out as part of a project as opposed to way down the road after raising money, et cetera, et cetera. And so then with Jeff and Brent, you, as you said, you started trying to figure out if there was market fit. And so you applied and were accepted into the National Science Foundation's Innovation Corps, or I-Corps, and then spent several, was it weeks or months traveling around the U.S. and Europe meeting with different industries? And I'm curious, what did you learn? Yeah, well, for starters, I will major plug for the NSF I-Corps program. Um, that was an incredibly formative, foundational, and really set, I think, a lot of habits in place as we started to build the business. The insistence on going to meet folks in person got me exposure to my first industrial environments. And that really changes how you think about where your stuff comes from when you see and feel and physically experience the scale uh, of which manufacturing underpins our economy, our GDP, our workforce. And and so I feel feel very fortunate that we had that opportunity. We talked to about 100 customers over about six weeks um, in 15 different industries and learned a lot about listening and hearing the customer, which I think translates to also hearing team members and hearing customers today as, as we've scaled and not pitching, right? I think I went in thinking that when you're building a business, you go and you pitch all the time. But with customers and, and team members both, hearing what's really going on is as important important and much more difficult because we all see the world through our own filter and forcing yourself to really hear what they're putting down or pick up what they're putting down has been a skill and and knowing our customer, I think, helped us stand out when we did ultimately raise money. And so prior to raising money, you all decided not to immediately start the company, but that you were going to give yourselves one academic year to decide if you were really going to start the company or not. And so you were lecturing at MIT for a year while applying for grants, and you did end up getting a $65,000 grant from the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center and then a 225 k grant from NSF. Uh, What was your decision at the end of the academic year? And, you know, most founders might not approach it that deliberately. Like, why did you choose to do that? And then then what was the outcome at the end of the year? Sure. So, um, I think one thing that had helped us, both Brent and me, was that we had seen We'd seen peers and we'd seen uh, fellow students work on an idea for a really long time, sort of in a vacuum. And we really didn't want to do that. We really wanted to 
fail fast, if you will, to use to use a buzzword. And so we said we gave ourselves a year to to validate that what we were doing was important enough. Um, and we used the metric, could we pay ourselves? If we could pay ourselves after a year, then somebody cared enough about what we were working on um, and customers cared enough about what we were working on that we should continue to work on it. So that was sort of our philosophy going in. So you're right, I, I worked, um, I taught at MIT for a year. Brent was a postdoc. Um, we did very little lab work, though we did a little bit. Um, we really mostly talked to customers, talked to investors, talked to manufacturing suppliers, tried to understand the lay of the land while we had the security of, of jobs um, in those early days. And then at the end of the year, you did have enough to pay yourself. We did. Uh, we did. We uh, met payroll. We didn't meet payroll. And then we met payroll again. We've never <laughs> not met it ever since, knock on wood. Um, and that was through a combination of grants, as you mentioned, and a seed round that we raised led by the engine. Um, and so I know you officially incorporated the company in November of 2016 in order to apply for and receive those grants, but then really started working on the company in July of 2017. Um, and like you said, in in September of 2017, you applied and were accepted into the very first cohort of startups that were backed by MIT's startup accelerator called The Engine, and that, as you said, they led your million-dollar seed round. Um, what did the seed funding enable you to do other than pay yourself? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, very good, very good question. Um, well, you were able to hire the first uh, folks on our team. And I think that made such a big difference as opposed to Brent and I working on this, you know, in our garages or in our basements or whatever, um, whatever the prototype startup vision is, uh, because we realized quite quickly that we were building a chemistry company and neither of us were chemists. And so hiring <laughs> was a chemist that scary? was first. <laughs> that was terrifying. I knew that I was <laughs> terrible at chemistry. Um, and we knew that to be able to prove um, prove the concept and and even put anything in front of a customer, we were going to have to get more repeatable, more reliable, scale up, and and those are those were things that we didn't know how to do. And to this day, we uh, hire people who know how to do things better than we do, and. Um, that seed money was the beginning of that. So I think had we not raised that, we never would have got off the ground because we did it, wouldn't have brought in the right, the right people. I think another thing to mention is that this was 2017 and very few people were investing in material companies. Very few people were investing in what we called clean tech, but climate tech today. Um, and one of the ways it was explained to me was so awesome, which was that uh, software has a lot of market risk, right? You can build something, but will they come? That's a big question. Uh, biotech has a lot of technical risk. You know that if you if you solve a very big health problem, there will be a market. And materials and clean tech have both. And uh, <laughs> when it was portrayed to me like that, I um, you know doubly appreciate the the bet that the engine and others took on us at that time, uh, well ahead of the investment in climate, the focus on industrial decarbonization, and the, the climate tech kind of boom that's happening right now. Coming up, Shreya and the team set their sights on decarbonizing an overlooked source of emissions, the pulp and paper industry. But first, What It Takes is brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to accelerate the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a low-carbon energy future. 
From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Flare, who are reducing homeowners' heating and cooling expenses and emissions, like Ample, who are solving how fleets get electric energy in cities, like Palmetto, who have built a clean energy marketplace. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. Um, The first market that Via Separations is focused on is decarbonizing the paper and pulp industry, as you mentioned earlier. Given all the conversations you had with those various industries, how did you decide on that sector over others? And what are the other target sectors that you're looking at or have looked at? Um, So first of all, pulp and paper has a burning need. It's a commodity business. And so by reducing energy consumption, there is a direct impact to margin and free cash flow. And that creates multiples on their value. So there is a really cool opportunity in commodity markets, which you actually don't often hear about in the in the venture world. Um, more tactically, we also enable capacity increases, which allows them to make more products using their existing assets. It's called process intensification. Um, it's something the industry knows well, is familiar with, and frequently happens um, during consolidation periods, periods of economic downturn. Um, fewer facilities make more product. The industry is growing, but you don't necessarily need all those assets, and we we enable that as well. The second reason we focus on pulp and paper is because it represents one of the largest kind of single separations. So every customer has the, um, uh, roughly the same separation, um, and it accounts for 1% of global emissions. And pulp and paper as a whole accounts for about 3% of global emissions, which is same order of magnitude as air travel. Um, and yeah, and the separation is a third of that. And so by um, by targeting this market, we as a company are moving the needle and that's our North Star. Mm, got it. And then in March of 2019, Via Separation raised a 4.8 million Series A. Uh, Who was part of the A and what was it like raising the A, especially compared to that seed round from the engine? Sure. So um, at this point, we had convinced ourselves that we were building something that customers wanted and that technically could be accomplished. You know, there are real barriers in physics and thermodynamics. And we wanted to make sure that we were not violating any of those laws before we uh, raised more money, right? Ethically, we wanted to understand what the risks there were. And so we were convinced here that that we were building something. Our Series A was led by Arunas Chisonis at Safar Partners and catalyzed by Prime Impact Fund. Um, it included MassCC, Embark Ventures, and of course, the engine as well. And we were about four people when we raised the A. We said and we did uh, deliver on pilot facilities with that A round. So with about $6 million in the bank, we went from lab to pilot scale. um, And that was uh, a bit of a... A bit of a sprint to proving to customers that we could do what we said we could do. And that that helped kind of set the foundation for the rest of the business. Okay, so you raised the Series A. And then what does that enable in terms of the tech development and 
at that point in your development, what does the technology look like? How is it working? Yeah. So we, when we raised the A, we were very much at the lab scale, which meant that everything we tested was under very controlled conditions. We knew exactly what was going in, what was coming out, and we could monitor all the aspects of it. When we um, raised the B, or at the end of the, the A period, we had tested in the field, which meant we didn't have full con- control over the weather or lightning or flooding or the temp- the ambient temperature. And so that was a pretty big shift in the technology's uh, readiness level, if, if you will. Our team scaled from four to 12, and their uh, each person at the company worked shifts at that first pilot because we needed to staff it 24 hours a day for safety reasons. And we needed human beings to be able to staff it. And we had 12 of them. And so uh, just to, to give a context of, of scale and what we were all doing. So, so everybody, including the office manager, myself, we all worked shifts, daytime, nighttime, so on and so forth. Um, what's actually happening at that pilot site is uh, the customer's real feed stream is entering our product and we are delivering the stream that they would then be using um, in in that commercial environment. Uh, the thing that's going in is roughly 10 or 15% solids, and the thing that's coming out is 20 or 25% solids. So we're removing water uh, before it ends up going into the pasta pot. And if you're able to share, um, what were the industries for those pilot sites, and are those still industries of focus? Yeah, all three of our pilots from 2021 were in the pulp and paper industry. We will be expanding into chemicals, petrochemicals, food and beverage, um, so on and so forth, which um, I think speaks to the the breadth of separations, kind of to what I was saying earlier. It's a part of every manufacturing process. Um, but our focus right now is rigorously pulp and paper. And so we piloted with three different customers in 2021 there. You started via separations more than five years ago. And in October of 2021, you raised a 38 million Series B, and that brings total capital raised to just over 55 million. Um, Who was part of the B? And then how did raising the B compare to raising the seed and the A? Our Series B was led by NGP, which is a growth equity investor in 2040 Foundation, plus all of our prior investors. And that capital is now being used to commercialize and install the first-of-a-kind system at a first customer. And so that's all happening right now. It's all very exciting. Uh, It was very different for us raising the B than raising the A because we had um, customers who were willing to vouch for us and because we really were square in the asset business. And so on one hand, it makes it a lot easier. And on the other hand, it's it's a lot more difficult. And that's one of the things that I think is really cool about NGP and, and other investors that have experience in the asset business is that the construction and delivery pieces of the engineering projects that we're deploying are very important to get right. And the energy transition traditional energy folks have that experience set. Um, and so finding our uh, finding our people was a big part of raising the Series B. Mm. A lot of founders, and I think especially a lot of women, 
find it frustrating raising capital um, for a lot of reasons. What was the process like for you? You, you mentioned finding your people. Uh, how easy or hard was it to find your people? Um, I think for everybody, fundraising is never easy. Um, and I think uh, for me, it's an important reminder that fundraising is a means, not an end. It is the way we build our business. It is a tool to build our business, but it is not necessarily a point of pride um, in the sense that when somebody says, congratulations on a fundraise, uh, my co-founder Brent always says, well, we sold part of the company. It's not like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not like we got it for free. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an important tool to growing the pie and it's incredibly catalytic, uh, but it's not the goal. The goal is the impact. The goal is the product. The goal is solving the customer's problems. And I think throughout fundraising, it's a really important reminder. And then the other thing I, I think is important is that fundraising is hard, but building a business is harder. And <laughs> you probably know this. And um, things don't just get easier once you fundraise. They don't just get easier once you hit the next milestone. They get harder. They get more complex. We just get better at handling hard things. Very well said. Um, so you had these three pilots and you said you're embarking now on this first commercial project. Tell us more about the first commercial project and, you know, what scale are we looking at now? Yeah, this first commercial product project will uh, go in by the end of the year. It's about 10,000 square feet of pumps, pipes, uh, steel housings, pressure vessels, heat exchangers, controls, um, all the whole nine yards. And uh, we're working with a phenomenal customer, which I can't quite share the details on, but a phenomenal customer. We feel very fortunate to work with this customer because they run a tight ship and and we love working with such a well-run facility. Um, this customer also has a large portfolio of other facilities, which we have direct application to. And so um, as far as uh, thinking about longer term strategy and impact, that's, that's relevant to us as well. This first project is also in the paper industry or pulp industry. What is the next industry that you're most excited to go after or will go after? Yeah, I'm really excited about the acids manufacturing and concentration market right now in the chemicals industry. Uh, sulfuric acid is used as a catalyst across a huge number of sectors. There's enormous volumes of it created both domestically and globally. Um, and there are some really key separations that um, can be drastically changed and, and um, uh, impacted by our technology. So in addition to this new project that you're working on, you're also building a software monitoring solution to keep track of your products after deployment and to help customers maximize their impact and to, to, and to detect maintenance issues early. What are some of the key customer considerations that you've made over the years and, and how have you decided to focus on, you know, this software monitoring solution and uh, the, the maintenance detection solutions that you're working on? Sure. So um, one of the things that is cool about our technology is that we're an add-on to existing manufacturing facilities. These facilities have control rooms, they have operations teams, and as a result, we can leverage that and we can remotely monitor and predict um, the performance of the system. And so that we, as 
a company don't necessarily need to be on site in a large um, sense all the time. And and exactly where that will land. You don't have to do the night shifts. Exactly. I won't be doing many more <laughs> night shifts. <laughs> okay. um, and so where exactly that lands is 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 still to be determined. Uh, we've logged about 6,000 hours of field operational data already, and that's been the the stepping stone for us understanding what it is we're, we're developing and, and how we're going to develop that. Um, when we're talking to customers, um, the most important thing for us, or one of the most important things for us, is uh, to not death by pilot, which... Um, to me is piloting until you run out of money and, and never <laughs> turning commercial. And so we're very selective about who we pilot with. We're very clear collectively about our target outcomes, both from a technical perspective and a commercial perspective. Um, and both the pilots are contractually binding. And so we both have skin in the game to succeed um, or or figure out that it's not a good fit. And, and for the record, it's been the former on every case, but um, getting to that uh, real decision point as soon as possible is our goal. To your point on not trying to die by pilot, um, what are your customers paying for? You know, do you own and operate the equipment for them? Do you sell the equipment to the customers? Our business model can be flexible, but we're seeing traction with an own and operate model with our earliest customers that allows us to take on the technology risk um, and also take on the operational risk, right? This is a very new thing for the industry. And A, we want to get it right, but B, um, they can't afford not to get it right. And so it kind of takes that risk off of the purchaser, off of the decision maker at the customer site and shortens our sales cycle by quite a bit uh, as at the same time. Um, How we fund that on or off balance sheet, project or top co-financing, all of those things are um, really fun, creative problems to solve and ones that we're working on right now and will be a huge part of our, our ability to scale. What kind of impact will the Inflation Reduction Act have on industrial separation and then via separations in particular? Well, I love the Inflation Reduction Act, um, <laughs> although it does not have specific call-outs for separations I, like it does. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. In general, cross-cutting technologies don't see the same um, attention politically, po- policy-wise, I should say. And, and that's okay because I think the Inflation Reduction Act does a great job starting to navigate the valley of death between development or something that, say, RPE might fund and then the commercial pieces, something that maybe the loan programs office would would work with. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act has done a good job identifying funding and then resourcing the in-between, um, the first of a kind, the cost reductions that need to happen, those sorts of things. I think it's worth mentioning that for us, it's very important that the product can stand on its own two feet. Um, the technology does not have a green premium. In fact, it uh, saves customers money and as a byproduct reduces their emissions. And um, that opportunity with the Inflation Reduction Act will help accelerate our deployment. It will help move more product faster for us as a business, but it is not going to be the decision maker for a customer purchasing um, purchasing decision. 
When you reflect on building the company over the last five years, um, how many people are on the team today? And what have you learned about hiring since you started building the team? We are 50 people on payroll today. Um, I've learned how amazing it is to work with amazing people and how magic can happen when folks are aligned towards a a goal that they're uh, motivated uh, towards. I've also learned that hiring is hard, and this is not news to anybody, um, but there are... um, there are pitfalls, and, and we've learned very much by experience, uh, as to what makes a great person at different stages of the company. Um, it's not the, the person who uh, is perfect for a company at four people might not be a person who's perfect for the company at 50 people, and that's very important to recognize. And, and maybe they are, and maybe there is a way to, to make that work, and, and we've seen that as well. But fundamentally, we're a different company than we were five years ago. Yeah, it's good advice. Um, If you could go back in time five years ago when you were founding Via Separations, what advice would you give yourself? I think I would tell myself to go for it, um, maybe a little faster than we did. I think it's important to have the conviction that you are doing something the world needs based on real data, um, but also the humility that you can learn from people around you and to ask all those questions and help and advice. In terms of going faster, do you wish you would have you know, not done that academic year or... I mean, you needed to do the PhD because that's how you found the original technology. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, what does it mean? What 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 was what would going faster have looked like? Yeah, I think we probably could have piloted maybe three months sooner. Not a huge difference, but three months is three months. Um, we were worried about. Uh, dotting every I and crossing every T. And it turned out the stuff that was hard was stuff that we completely didn't expect uh, anyway. And so three months wouldn't have really changed the game in any direction there. Um, So things like that, I think I would always tell myself to ship it sooner because that's how you learn and to be a little more risk tolerant when you do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Totally agree. It reminds me of what you said about growing up and your dad, especially encouraging you to just take risks, you know, with him as an entrepreneur and and not to be afraid of failure, which I think that is often what holds people back from starting a company is that that fear of failure. And that is the most likely outcome. You know, I think it's 90% of companies fail in the first five years. Um, but your point on trying anyway and, you know, ship it sooner and learn from it, um, but don't wait or don't not try because of that fear of failure. I I completely agree, and uh, I think it's always scary to put your life's work out there, and without doing that, you can't get very far. What has been the single worst day at Via Separation so far? I think that would be when we were making really hard decisions with very limited information in the early days of COVID. Um, We didn't know what risks we were asking team members to put themselves at, put ourselves at as well. Speaking for Brent and myself, we would never ask somebody to do something we weren't comfortable doing. Um, And yet the potential of weeks or months or who knows how long of, of shutdown could have killed the company as well. And so navigating those decisions was tough. Um, How has your leadership style changed, if it has, since you started the company? Great question. Um, I would say that 
very recently, so in the last 12 months or so, I have changed a lot how I prioritize and spend my time. My leadership instinct is to dive into the trenches with everybody and be part of as much as possible. Um, and and you think you're helping. You're like, here I am exactly. for everything. And they're like, get off. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but I don't think I really learned that until I ran up against time constraints. Um, my husband and I welcomed our first child last March. And even from the early days of that pregnancy, I had to acknowledge there were new limits, right? I couldn't work the night shift in the same way I I might have been able to previously. And that combined with taking a maternity leave and taking a step back and thinking about my role in the organization and what value I was adding um, helped me figure out the things that I was doing at the company just because I started doing them in 2017 versus the things that I should be spending my time. Um, probably shouldn't be admitting this so publicly, but but I, I, I learned a lot about that, learned about delegation, learned about um, what are the things that only I could do. And if I could go back, I would have done that a couple years ago. Yeah. And I so appreciate the vulnerability. And that's what I love about what it takes is that people are honest about the hard parts and the mistakes that they made. And it humanizes the experience of entrepreneurship in a way that I think entrepreneurialism is so rarely humanized. It's all glorified and romanticized. And it's like, this is the reality of what it is. You know, the the stuff that's great, the stuff that's hard. I completely agree. I think the reality of entrepreneurship is that you're a whole person and that affects everything, whether you want it to or not. And every every human being, I think, in in, in their jobs, but maybe especially so when when you're the face of an organization. Absolutely. Um, would love to hear about your experience as an uh, Indian American woman leading a climate tech company in an industry that is majority white, majority male. I think as a scientist, it's hard for me to know how it would be otherwise because I don't have that control experience. I don't know what the experience would be if I wasn't who I am. Um but it's true. I don't look like a lot of my peers. I don't talk like a lot of my peers. Our customers don't look anything like me. And I think it takes vision, whether it's a customer, an investor, a team member on our team, or um, a partner, to have vision to kind of see past that and and take, take on that risk. Um, because as human beings, we tend to uh, flock towards similarities, flock towards things that we can relate to, and uh, that's not always the case. You mentioned being a new parent to your 10-month-old son and being a partner to your husband and obviously being a founder and CEO. What has it been like being all of those things at the same time? Uh, fun. Um, uh, my husband and I are a team. We believe that life has seasons and those seasons shift with time and divide and conquer to the best of our ability in whatever season we are in at, at a current moment. Um, we don't try to do everything every day because nobody can do that, but we both love being active parents. And, um, that has, like I said, really changed how I think about leadership and, and think about prioritization and things, things of, think of um, my role at, at an organization and my role in a position of power enabling other women to feel comfortable being pregnant at work or um, talking about the physical and emotional burdens of parenthood, or women and men. And, and I think that 
if I can if I can do a, make somebody's life a little more comfortable, I'd be very proud. Mm, I love that, and I'm sure you have, and will continue to. When you look ahead, what will the future of industrial decarbonization and particularly purification and separation look like in a decade? In a decade, I think we will see uh, membranes take on a huge role in industrial separation and purification processes. Um, Off the top of my head, I can think of three awesome other startups working on problems like CO2 capture, battery recycling, petrochemical separations. These are all fundamentally separations. Um, And we need different chemistries to solve different problems. You know, you have different battery chemistries for different durations or power densities or whatever, um, it's similar with with membrane chemistries. And so uh, we have a huge platform opportunity across a number of sectors, pulp and paper and chemicals and things like that. Um, But I think the shift is inevitable, um, just the way it happened in the water industry. It's going to happen across all industrial processing. And if Via Separations succeeds, what will the company look like in a decade? Yeah, we'll have um, scaled in the pulp and paper industry, launched commercially in several more sectors, slashed the carbon footprint of more products that we're all using every day. I think um, I'll have gotten to see what our incredible colleagues have done, um, what we've done together, and uh, I think we'll be well on our way to changing the world. Well, I think you already are. And that is a perfect segue into my favorite part, which is our high voltage round. So these are quick questions, quick answers. I know you've listened to the podcast, but I specifically asked you not to listen to the ends that you don't know what questions are coming. So hopefully they'll be new to you. The first one is, Shreya, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? This is a really hard question for me, but I would say a honeybee because I like to take care of my community. Um, and I think we can all do amazing things together. Hmm, that's great. I think you might be our first what it takes B. I'll have to double check, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, what inspires you? Great people. Hmm. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Probably teaching middle school science, though I'm not at all qualified, but I think that a lot of, (laughs) at all, but I think a lot of girls lose interest in science and math right around middle school, and I'd love to be part of that change. Mm -hmm. Do you know what kept you engaged in middle school and then throughout, you know, high school and all of undergrad and grad school? I think awesome teachers and my parents who kind of wouldn't take no for an answer. (laughs) Got it. Uh, Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Those parents who wouldn't take no for an answer, for sure. (laughs) I hope they're overhearing this right now. I hope so, too. Uh, Tell me about a specific time that you failed. Um, So I failed a qualifying exam during my PhD, which I'm not technically supposed to know that I did, but I I heard through the grapevine. (laughs) And um, I had worried going into that that I was doing a PhD just because it was the easy, easy next step. Not that it was easy, but it was the logical next step. I was going to say, you're, I've never heard anyone say the PhD was like the easy next thing to do. It was It was a thing that came after the master's. Um, and that really clarified that the reason why I was doing a PhD and made me realize I really, really wanted to stay. And so it was pretty formative. Hmm. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? That giving away 
responsibilities, even if they're mundane, is good for the organization and that it's not just me being lazy. Mm, so well said. Uh, what's the best investment you've ever made? Um, probably in my relationship and my marriage. Oh, it's very cute. Uh, what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Uh, I thought with Brent about this a lot. Uh, I used to think that you could change people. And I think that people change, but that motivation has to be intrinsic and nothing I can, and I, I'm not really going to change that for other people. Uh, when are you your best self? Uh, when I'm inspired with a project, if that's like a baking project or something at work or, um, yeah, when I'm inspired with a project. Mm. What is your worst trait? Um, I got some feedback early on in VIA that I didn't celebrate wins very well. And I think that's totally fair. I think I tend to focus on what's the next thing to work on and like get on with it. Um, and so I'm working on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you celebrate any wins lately? Uh, none that I can think of. So I can't be working <laughs> on it that well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, always, always room for improvement. It sounds like some big ones coming up that I'm sure you yes, will there celebrate. are some big ones coming up. <laughs> uh, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Um, I think food insecurity globally holds a lot of people back from education and mobility, and obviously comfort. And so, I think I would eliminate food insecurity. If there was just one person who was going to listen to this podcast, who would you want it to be? Probably the people who said that industrial customers would never let us pilot, would never let us on their facility, that the risk aversion of, of the types of customers we work with was too strong and that they would never buy something from us. Mm. And if they were standing in front of you right now, what would you say to them? I'd probably say thank you. <laughs> because um, I know for a fact that that sent me on some journeys to discover things about our customers or to solve problems. And so not to, I didn't do that to prove them wrong, but uh, I definitely learned something from that. Mm, that's so mature of you. I feel like I would have said, you know, look at me now. <laughs> but you're just like, no, thank you. I've learned from this. Um, when was the last time you were scared? Um, right before recording this podcast, get public speaking stage right. Uh, that's great. How are you feeling now? Better, definitely better. Okay, okay, good, good. Uh, what is your best quality? Uh, I am definitely an optimist and mm. often have faith, warranted or not, that things will work out. Hmm. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because they don't understand their customers well enough. Mm. If you really knew me, you would know. I don't like rules and I love potatoes. <laughs> um, any particular kind? Not not like a variety, but a, you know, like a baked potato French or fries. French fries? Okay, okay, yeah. French fries. <laughs> <laughs> um, success is... Um, feeling fulfilled by whatever it is that fulfills you. Mm. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... Felt less bad about not knowing 
everything that's going on in the organization as we scaled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... I hope being kind, being a kind person. Mm. I'm most proud of... Our team that we built at VIA. Mm. And last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is... This is a word that I'm pretty sure my mom made up, but stick to <laughs> which I think amounts to tenacity. Awesome. Uh, well, Shreya, it's been such a pleasure to get to know you and Via Separations from our research ahead of this conversation, but especially the conversation. And I'm really happy you're doing what you're doing in the world. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for doing what you're doing in the world. This is an incredible opportunity for us. Shreya DeVay is the co-founder and CEO of Via Separations. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I'd like to thank What It Takes listener Reed Sachs, who wrote, No one gets energy execs to dig deeper, both about what they do and who they are personally, better than what it takes. Not only informative and enjoyable, but often inspirational. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures with support from PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. If you have a friend or colleague who might like this episode, please send them the link. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand and Greg Villefrank are our engineers. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>